Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, America's longest war has come to an end. Two decades, thousands of lives lost, and what's estimated to be a cost in the trillions of dollars. Georgia Congressman Buddy Carter will join me in just a moment. He talks about what it all means then and now. Also, DeKalb County Commissioner Ted Terry explains why he's supporting several proposed initiatives with a focus on community policing and mental health services. And then later, Dr. Jane Morgan, Piedmont HealthCare's COVID-19 Task Force Clinical Director, talks about continuing efforts to get more folks vaccinated. Now that the Pfizer vaccine is officially approved, here's the question. Will it prompt some to get vaccinated? Those conversations are all coming up in a moment. But first this, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's latest executive order will continue to assist the state's health care systems hit hard by this new wave of COVID-19. Now, during a press briefing on Monday, Kemp said the Georgia Coordinating Center will continue to spearhead efforts. Today, I'm announcing an additional $4.5 million for a total state investment of $6 million to strengthen their efforts. This $4.5 million allotment will allow the Georgia Coordinating Center to bring on more staff, improve technology and infrastructure, especially in rural parts of our state, and provide their critical service faster and more efficiently to the fellow healthcare heroes across Georgia. And the GCC is a resource for EMS personnel and hospitals. Now, Governor Kemp is also deploying an additional 1,500 Georgia National Guard troops Two healthcare facilities in those areas hit hard by COVID-19 infections. Of course, this is all fueled by the Delta variant. Back to Kemp's executive order, it brings that total now up to 2,500 guard troops. And Kemp also announced a new incentive for anyone covered by the state health benefit plan to get fully vaccinated. Kemp says about 325,000 Georgians are eligible, so pay attention. For either a $150 Visa gift card or $480 in credits that can be used for health care expenses, you know, like co-pays and co-insurance. I think we all have those. This also includes state health plan members who have already who have already been vaccinated. So we'll have more on that later today from our WABE newsroom. Now, coming up next, longtime Georgia Republican Congressman Buddy Carter and his thoughts about the end of America's longest war. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. It was long and it was costly. America's longest war has come to an end. Monday afternoon, as he addressed the news media via closed circuit, General Frank McKenzie, commander of the U.S. Central Command, relayed every single American service member is now out of the country. Tonight's withdrawal signifies both the end of the military component of the evacuation, but also the end of the nearly 20-year mission that began in Afghanistan shortly after September 11, 2001. It's a mission that brought Osama bin Laden to a just end, along with many of his al-Qaeda co-conspirators. And it was not, it was not a cheap mission. The cost was 2,461 U.S. service members and civilians killed, and more than 20,000 who were injured. Sadly, that includes 13 U.S. service members who were killed last week by an ISIS-K suicide bomber. Now, as we know, not all Americans, diplomats, and those Afghans who worked alongside the U.S. since 2001 were able to leave. Now, what began as Operation Enduring Freedom was costly, not only in lives, but financially, an estimated cost in the trillions. Longtime Georgia Republican Congressman Buddy Carter represents Georgia's first congressional district. If you don't know where that is, I'm about to tell you. That's the entire coastal area of Sea Islands and a large majority of the southeastern part of the state, Savannah, Brunswick, Jessup, and Waycross. Congressman Carter, thanks for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Let's begin here, because as the last military personnel are now out of Afghanistan, but it also comes as 13 service members and more than 100 others, mostly Afghans, were killed last week. A deadly ending to a deadly beginning. I want to ask you, did, ask you this. Did the U.S. need to be in this region for two decades? Well, that's a, a, a question and, and a subject that will be debated for years to come. I would say at this point, yes, we did. And, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, especially to begin with, because I want to make it clear. I want to make it clear to all of our veterans who served in Afghanistan and all of those who are still active duty who, who served in Afghanistan that your service, that your sacrifice was not in vain. You kept us safe. For two decades, you kept our country safe. The number one responsibility of the federal government is to protect our homeland. You did that, and we thank you for that. And we never want you to feel that your service, that your sacrifice was in vain. Given that Operation Enduring Freedom from a combat mission from that standpoint actually ended in the Obama administration, should Congress, should you all, or did you, and I want to be fair, ask for or pressured then a more comprehensive plan to withdrawing. And if you did, if y'all did, and we don't know about it, I think you should tell our listeners, what was the, was there a plan when this ended from a combat mission in the Obama administration with the withdrawal plan? Not to my knowledge. And, and I, I say that, um, you know, I, I don't serve on the, on the um, HASC Armed, Armed Services Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I, you know, it's important to know, look, we, we all agree, Republicans and Democrats, that we have to end these endless wars. We understand that. But I think the way that this one ended is, is the problem. And it, it was an unmitigated disaster that should not have happened. And it, the Biden administration showed complete 
incompetence, complete ineptness in the way that they left. Now, I've heard all this about, oh, wait a minute now, the, the agreement had already been made by the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. We were held to that agreement. Well, first of all, that agreement, as we've been told by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, was always conditions-based. In other words, we were, we were in agreement with the Taliban to say that if you do this, we'll do that. If you do that, we'll do this. That was the way that agreement was structured. The way that it, the exit was structured was not that way. Secondly, you know, for the for President Biden to say that, oh, my hands were tied, I had no other choice. Well, that's certainly not the case with any of the other agreements that were in place or any of the other policies that were in place during the during the Trump administration, i.e., the border, i.e., our our energy policies. He's reversed all of those. So certainly he could have reversed this if he had wanted to. Let me ask you this, Congressman Carter. What would have been a more strategic and maybe even one less deadlier plan through your lens? Anything? You no question offer? about it. No question about it. I, I mean, first of all, we got to get every American. I would have made sure that every American was out of there. And I will pause and say this. We, we cannot leave any Americans over there. What has been done here by Joe Biden, by the Biden administration, leaving hundreds of Americans, perhaps even thousands of Americans over there, and certainly thousands of Afghanistans who served as interpreters and, and were, were helping us, that is un-American. It's immoral. It's un-American. We never leave anyone behind. But first of all, I would have made sure that all Americans were out of there. Secondly, I would have made sure that all of our equipment was out of there. Remember, $85 billion worth of equipment, 600,000 weapons, 75,000 vehicles, black hawks, drones, 200 aircraft, all of that's still over there. And guess what? Now it's going to be used against us. That is, that is unfamiliar. Let me back up. When you say now it's going to be used against us, are you suggesting that there will be some attacks? Because obviously the Taliban will get this equipment. Are you suggesting that then this equipment that's left, and you are correct, that there is about a billion dollars left of, of military equipment that's behind, you envision that being used by the Taliban against attacks either on American soil or somewhere else? You I think it would be naive of us not to expect that. Look, the Taliban is not our friend. They're not our ally. And, and you know, one of the, uh, my fellow colleagues. Well, but President Trump made the agreement with them. So did you it, have but, any but issues? But it was conditions based. It was conditions based. And part of the conditions was going to make sure that we got those the, those weapons out of there. And that did not happen. I, I don't care how you want to slice this or how you want to, to frame this. This was a total disaster that should not have happened, that, that, that did not have to happen. Let me ask you this, because going back to then this original agreement with the Trump administration and the Taliban, it also meant that the U.S. was going to reduce its forces in Afghanistan to like maybe 8,600. I'm sure you knew that. You knew the provisions of this agreement. Did that make sense to reduce the military even back then? To reduce the number of Americans who were serving over there? No, the U.S. forces. The U.S. forces that were serving part of that there. agreement was that the U.S. would reduce its forces in Afghanistan to about 8,600. Also, now I want to be fair because some of the allies were doing the same thing, but we're talking about the U.S. Was that smart to agree to reduce the military force in this region with this agreement that Trump made with the Taliban? 
Well, first of all, I'm not I'm not familiar with, with what you're speaking about with the 8600. So I want to be careful with, with how I comment on it. But the the end goal of both the Trump administration and the Biden administration was to get us out of there and to get us to end this endless war, the longest war we've ever been involved in. So, yes, we were on the same page with that. But the way that you exit, that is the key. One of my colleagues said, and I thought it was a great statement that he made, this is the first time that I've ever heard of the enemy serving as our security force. The enemy was the Taliban, and they were serving as our security force. When should then this plan to evacuate troops and those who are working with the U.S., when should this have begun then? Well, I think that the agreement— Because some argue it should, some argue it should have happened under President Donald Trump since he made the agreement. Well— I'm sure had he been reelected that it would have, but I am I am extremely confident that he would have handled it in a much different situation. And that if we still, it doesn't matter. We can we can sit here all day and say what if and and discuss that. But the point is, what did happen should not have happened, and did not have to happen. And it, that is a disastrous withdrawal, an unmitigated disaster on the behalf of Joe Biden and the Biden administration. We lost Americans. We left Americans over there. This is a sad, sad state of affairs. It's the worst foreign dis- foreign relations debacle in the history of our country. The worst, Congressman Carter, really? The worst. This is Saigon on steroids. Well, Congressman Carter, I think, do you want to walk back any of that? Because one would argue when you start comparing, listen, lives were lost before what happened last week. And lives were lost before the last two service members that were killed, I believe, in February of 2020. And then later that month is when President Trump made the the agreement with the Taliban. At this point, because you're right, people will go back and forth blaming. But at this point now, what should the U.S. What should the United States strategy be to evacuate those remaining Americans and Afghans who want to leave? Can we do what? this? With the Taliban, because you we have an agreement with the Taliban and we're out of there the 31st. That's today. What is the strategy now? How do you propose to do that? Well, first of all, you never set a mission with a date. You set a mission with an outcome. Anybody serving in the military will tell you that. Anybody with military leadership will tell you that. Secondly, what's it going to take? Whatever it takes. We have to make sure that every American gets out of there whatever it takes. Does that also mean sending more military personnel back? If that's what it takes to get every American out of there, then yes, we need to do that. How much confidence do you have in the U.S.'s visa approval process for Afghan nationals or the opportunity for refugee resettlement to occur in the United States? Do you have confidence that we can get this done as well? Well, after seeing what the State Department, what this current State Department has done during the exit, which is my understanding, and we've been brief that the State Department was in charge of the exit, not the Department of Defense, mm-hmm. which I find to be very baffling. But nevertheless, giving that performance, then I don't have a lot of, of, of faith in the State Department. But I will tell you this, they need to be vetted, and they need to be vetted stringently before we let them into this into this country. 
And we also need to close that southern border and secure that southern border. Otherwise, they're going to be coming across that southern border, just like the 1.1 million illegal immigrants that have come over across that border since the first of the year. You want a stricter vetting process? Is there, are there concerns you have if they've been helping the United States all these last two decades or within the last decade? Do you have some concerns then? Why would you, I don't you want think- a stricter vetting process? I, I do, because I want to make sure that the ones that are getting in are the ones who have been helping us. I'm not naive enough to believe, and I don't believe any of us are naive enough to believe that there aren't going to be some who are going to try to get in who have the intention of hurting us and who weren't helping us during that two decades that we were over there. I want to talk about Congress, and I want to talk about what role you all play now. I think it's no secret that even since Obama's election, y'all have a Nestle got along, as some would say. We know that we keep hearing it's a divided Congress. I don't know how many times I keep saying that. We know there's tension. Congressman Carter, you have been there for a long time. You know the importance of bipartisanship. Is this a point now where Congress can come together and work with President Biden if this is the worst disaster, as you put it, in terms of military involvement? Then what do you propose in terms of y'all coming together and assisting the president in getting this right, as opposed to folks blaming each other, yelling and screaming, all the different news shows, including maybe this one, I don't know. What's the solution here? Well, I agree with you. We need to work in a bipartisan manner. And I think that if you will look at what is being said by members of both parties in Congress, they're all upset. There are a number of Democrats who are upset at the, at the lack of an energy of an exit from uh, strategy that by the Biden administration. And and yes, we can work together and we should work together because Democrats and Republicans alike all agree that we should never leave any Americans behind. We have never left a soldier behind and we should not leave any Americans behind now. Whatever it takes for us to work with the Biden administration to make sure every American gets home safely is what we should be doing. I think that's a sound bite that everyone probably will appreciate. Longtime Georgia Republican Congressman, Buddy Carter represents Georgia's first congressional district. Thank you for taking the time to appear on this program. I believe it was your debut appearance. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Social Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Recently, there was an editorial that was published in the on the independent news site, our good friends over at Decaturish.com. And it was titled Mental Health, Community Safety, and a New Way Forward for Policing in DeKalb. It was actually authored by DeKalb County Super District 6 Commissioner Ted Terry after his office received many calls and a lot of social media posts following the shooting of Matthew Zadok Williams by DeKalb police officer. We're going to have more on that in just a moment. But joining me now is DeKalb County Commissioner Ted Terry to talk about why he's supporting some proposed measures the county can improve on in terms of community policing and expanding expanding mental health resources. Commissioner Terry, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Rose. Uh, thank you so much. Excited to be here again. Great to see you. I do want to pick up with what happened with uh, Mr. Williams killing here, and, and it's still under investigation, we should note. But as it relates to back on April 12th, a neighbor called the police on Williams saying she was scared and that a homeless man was pacing outside of her condo. 
Then we understand when officers arrived on the scene, body cam video shows that Williams was shot by the Cap County police sergeant. After it appears, he charged at the officer with a knife. Now, according to other reports, Williams' family says he was having a mental health crisis that day. It was actually later revealed that Williams owned the property in which he was shot. This case, as we mentioned, is still under investigation. You heard a lot from folks. Your office was inundated with calls, messages. What did you hear from the community? Well, uh, we heard outrage, um, concern, and the the number one thing that I immediately thought of is how do we make sure this never happens again? I think that is ultimately when we talk about criminal justice reform, we want to create a system to where these things are so rare or will never happen again. And that's exactly what our job is as board of commissioners. We're policymakers. You know, we don't run the police department. Um, that's in the CEO's purview. Um, but as policymakers, we are charged with creating that system that will deliver justice. And that's exactly what we're working on. You mentioned something in terms of a narrative of a, as a, in a question, because we keep hearing this. How do we keep this from happening again? I think the community has long been hearing that, not just with this case, but for so many cases, for so many years. Through your mindset right now, and this is speaking as a Ted Terry citizen, how would you, are you able to assess DeKalb County Police in terms of how you view their approach to responding to calls that might involve someone with a mental health episode or a crisis? Yeah, I think what CEO Thurmond has put forward with Chief Ramos and Public Safety Director Lumpkin um, is a substantial advancement towards that reform that I think so many of us as, and I, I was a citizen last year, I, I, I wasn't mayor last year when I was running for county commission. And I remember going to the marches. We had one of the biggest marches and really only the, the first ever march for Black Lives or police reform in Clarkston's history last summer. And so I think what we've put forward um, this year in the comprehensive public safety plan, the $11 million investment in police and mental health, um, community policing, I think is the most substantial thing DeKalb County has done um, in 15 years, going back to when we first created the mobile crisis unit co-responder program, which I think was pretty ahead of its time when it was introduced. Let me ask you this, because I've asked folks this before. How do you define effective community policing? I realize there are a lot of optics around that, but if you can, how do you? Well, I think the, the basic community policing is you want patrol officers, detectives, any majors, police chiefs to interact with the community before something bad happens. Um, so often police is about responding to something that is happening right now. Um, but the, the, the theory of community policing is that the police are part of the community when nothing bad's happening. Um, mm -hmm. This is the idea behind the very successful creation of police athletic leagues. I mean, basically it's an after-school program uh, that are run by police officers, you know, when they're not on duty, um, or that is their job as a police officer. They're a, a POW officer. Um, I think the, the truest expression of 
community policing would be actually developing a structure um, that in my op-ed you referred to I, is, is called civilian-led policing. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 in essence, creates a civilian board, much like the DeKalb County Board of Health. Um, the public health director in DeKalb, you know, technically is held accountable by the civilian board of, um, of health. And so much like a civilian-led policing board could help create that permanent connective tissue between the community mm-hmm. and the policies and practices of the police department and actually create that permanent seat at the table. Well, let's talk about some of those initiatives that you propose in this letter. And I want to begin with first, why did you address this then to I believe you you addressed it to John Jackson, the chairman of the DeKalb County Democratic Committee. That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, Chairman uh, Jackson is a good friend and we're DeKalb Democrats together and it's an all Democratic County commission. <laughs> Actually, every elected official in DeKalb County is a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And so I think when the Democratic Party running on a platform of police reform, criminal justice reform, court reform, I mean, this was part of our platform in 2020, from Biden-Harris, Ossoff-Warnock, down to the local level. And, you know, when the the political leaders ask the elected leaders, what are you doing? Um, Especially understanding that we were able to flip Georgia blue because of the work that was done by the DeKalb Democratic Party and, you know, and the local grassroots, you know, politicos here. Um, we should follow through on what we said we're going to do. And so I respect the chairman, and he asked what we're doing. And so I told him in that email, and that's what I published. Why not the DeKalb County Police Chief? Not start. Why not start there? Well, again, it's it's, it's two different fronts. So mm-hmm. the, the, the $11 million public safety plan was, is really an administrative plan put forward by CEO Thurman. Sure. Um, and then what I've layered in on there is some additional policy ideas that moving forward, I think that we should consider. And, and Rose, you know me, I'm, I'm going to push the envelope. Um, I'm going to be a little bit of a disruptor. So, you know, I'm going to cause some problems um, at, in this March <laughs> really <now>. towards reform. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, yes, I mean, like, I think, I think that CEO has, put, has responded in the administrative way. And I think it's up to the commissioners to follow through with the funding. Um, so, for instance, a portion of this public safety response is through the American Rescue Plan budget, and we're looking at passing that budget here in the next few weeks. So using federal funding to possibly implement some of these proposed initiatives, as you see around the, the effective community policing, is what you're saying? That's right. It will. So the, the things that we've, I'll just outline it real quickly here. So we're expanding our mobile crisis unit, which is our co-responder program, so an officer and a crisis nurse that is trained and attached to the DeKalb Community Service Board, which is the mental health service provider for DeKalb County. It's Mm -hmm. a quasi-state agency that DeKalb County funds about 10% of their budget. The rest comes from state, Medicare, Medicaid, and other um, Department of Behavioral Health uh, funding. Um, So expanding the co-responder program Mm -hmm. so that uh, we have at least four co-responder units that cover the four precincts in DeKalb County. So again, the idea is that there will always be someone on call mm-hmm. ready to respond to that 1013 911 call. And so many other counties have 
initiated or, or they're implementing procedures like this or working with mental health programs. I know up in Gwinnett, also here in the Atlanta area with the PAD program. Uh, let me ask you, should there be a separate from 911 or a, some type of separate pathway for folks to call as opposed to 911? And that way you all are able to determine if you need to send out you know, your typical police officers or, as you put it, we're up to these, the crisis mobile unit, or that would just automatically respond once the call came in to 911? You know, it, so there is another number to call for the DeKalb Crisis Center. Mm-hmm. And so the that's run by the DeKalb Community Service Board. Uh, there is a number to call to sort of a deal with the non-emergency crisis. Um, but um, some of y'all may be noticing or hearing it later this year, the, the national um, suicide hotline. Um, I'm forgetting the, it's like 711 or something. I got to fact check me on that, Rose. But mm-hmm. there's a new system being rolled out that is already kind of going in that direction that is mm-hmm. sort of in the vein of suicide prevention and mental health crisis. So um, a simpler, a simpler was, number for folks to remember to make that call when they've appears that someone might be in a, a experiencing a mental health crisis as opposed to calling 911 which that's um, right it's the difference between non-emergency and emergency sure. and there will always be the, there will always be the case and the need to have the capacity to respond to the mental health emergency which should be a 911 call um, and rose right now DeKalb County police fire and the crisis unit are responding to most of these calls and so it is a multi-pronged approach um and and i I think it it, i think it's working well and this is why we want to expand the capacity of the crisis nurse program and uh, commissioner terry before i let you go because we're up against time i do want to give you an opportunity because i think there's another important proposal here as it as it relates to the officers and the personnel you're you're talking about uh, retention bonuses as well yeah, there is a an arms race when it comes to paying police officers more money. Um, and so uh, the, I'm here to report that all of our officers and 911 operators and sheriff's deputies and marshals, the whole law enforcement apparatus in DeKalb uh, received that $3,000 incentive bonus. Um, and it's going to help us keep our numbers up. And the, the, the bottom line is that um, ex- expanding when there is violent crime in the community, um, increasing police presence in those areas will reduce crime in the short term. Um, but you know, the, the crux of my argument is that the long-term future um, is much more complicated and has so many more layers than just saying we need to pay police officers more money. You end your letter by saying, quote, these reforms and policy changes can't happen overnight and indeed will be a long, hard slog as some will not want to see those changes. Do you expect opposition to these measures, which maybe looking first at it, someone says, well, this is this is all good. But do you expect some opposition? Have you heard from other people who say this, this is not needed or what, what what prompted you to write that? Well, I, as I alluded to earlier, uh, Rose, I'm, I'm a systems disruptor. And so any system that has been in existence for decades, if not 100 plus years, changing it always is going to be difficult because people don't want to change. It's just human nature. Um, but even the, if you see this as saving, elect, even if you see this as saving not only lives of community members, but officers as well, you really feel that folks won't get on board with this? Mr. Disruptor? Well, I, well, I think everyone wants to see the change. It's just there's a, a disagreement on how to do it. 
Ah. And and that's that's where we that's where the argument comes is how we actually do it. Haven't we um, all been there before? Yeah, that's right. But that's Everybody. my job. My job. I was elected to represent the people to push for these reforms, and I'm going to do that for the next four years. So, in other words, everyone wants the same probable outcome. It's just the execution we can't agree on. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> same story. The Cab County <laughs> Commissioner Ted Terry. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Keep us posted on how far these initiatives, how far they're going. Sure will. Thanks, Rose. All right. And as we continue now here on 90.1 WABE, this is Closer Look, Atlanta's Choice for NPR, and I'm Rose Scott. Here's what we know. Emergency rooms are at capacity. We know that, right? Total hospitalizations with those stricken with COVID-19, they have been increasing since the summer. At one time, it appeared the nation was turning the trend. But listen to this. As of August 2021, COVID-19 is third on the list of the top 10 leading causes of death in the U.S. That's according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Someone who has long been talking about ways to first get folks tested, then get folks vaccinated was Dr. Jane Morgan. She's Piedmont's Healthcare's COVID-19 Task Force Clinical Director. Been a guest on this program and nationally as well. Welcome back, Dr. Morgan. I appreciate it. Hi, Rose. Let's begin. Great to be here. Yeah, great, great to have you back. Let's begin here because right now, when you think about given when the rollout began for anyone 16 years of age or older to get one of the three vaccines, are you surprised or not surprised that Georgia is only at about a 42, 43 percent vaccination rate? Yeah, completely not surprised. And, and certainly um, it was uh, apparent to me and probably others as well more than a year ago, even like this vaccine rollout, that things weren't going to go well. Certainly within the African-American community, there was very little, if any, really communication or education or information that uh, was made available ahead of these vaccine labs. We're talking about a new scientific platform called Messenger RNA. Nobody's ever heard of it. Um, There is certainly a lot of uh, suspicion uh, steeped uh, in the African-American community with regard to research and healthcare, And so uh, we we had a a pending disaster uh, moving forward. And then when you also think about um, you know, the large percentage of the population um, that, uh, you know, just follows perhaps a, a certain type of uh, ideology, then we have to not be surprised that this is where we are and we have to continue to push this boulder uphill. As mentioned, coming into this segment, hospitals throughout Georgia, not just Georgia, are dealing with a lot. And you heard uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, he is giving more resources when you look at from the emergency rooms to just even the smaller clinics in the rural part of Georgia and what healthcare systems and facilities are dealing with, do you see a side in? How do we get to the point where we start to reverse that trend that we were experiencing not too long ago before this Delta variant? Is it solely yeah. just by vaccinating, getting more people vaccinated? Is that the key? Yeah, you know, we are we're certainly facing a, a crisis and vaccination is definitely our way out of this. Uh, we have had multiple windows of opportunities that we have uh, chosen um, not to take advantage of. And those windows have closed. Uh, this is another window of opportunity with regard uh, to the vaccines. 
Um, but at some point we may be facing uh, an even greater challenge in a variant uh, that's even uh, more difficult to manage, more difficult to treat, may cause serious disease than even the Delta variant. And that's because the longer and longer it takes for the majority of the population to get vaccinated, the more opportunities this virus has um, to mutate. And as it mutates and changes, you know, oftentimes the changes are not of significance, mm -hmm. but you can get these variants um, that can be um, increasingly um, significant and increasingly difficult to manage. And, and don't forget a variant is not a mutation. This is a term that people are using interchangeably with mutations. We used to talk about mutations. We're now talking about variants. Variant is actually a cluster of mutations, multiple mutations coming together to create a new version of the original virus. So understand the subtle change in terminology, which is very alarming to scientists, but for lay people, they may not really understand this, the significance that we're now using the word variant instead of mutation. It takes me back to when Dr. Fauci said, listen, understand when the CDC made the recommendation for vaccinated folks to ditch your mask indoors, outdoors, you were good to go. But then he said, well, let me explain why we're changing because the virus changed. Is that in That's a sense right. what you're saying too? That's exactly right. The virus changed. And why did the virus change? Because the virus seeks hosts or human beings who are unprotected. And so that's why we are concerned about the unvaccinated. We're concerned about their health, but we're also concerned about how they impact our health because we're all in this together. This is not a singular decision. This is not a decision of... I can make a decision about what's best for me, a singular decision, because it has a plural impact. So you can't make a decision for yourself about a communicable disease because it impacts many. And so this whole uh, concept of I'm going to maintain my independence, I can make decisions for myself is um, really you know, hard to understand when we're talking about communicable diseases. You can make that kind of decision if you're choosing chemotherapy or surgery or whether you're getting an X-ray or not or what school you're going to. But when you're talking about making a decision and your decision will impact others, like whether you smoke mm -hmm. in a crowded space or not, that's not a singular decision. That is a plural decision. For those that made the decision not to get vaccinated because they had concerns that the vaccines had not been fully approved by the FDA. Well, now, recently, of course, with the Pfizer vaccine, that has happened. Through your lens, do you think that will at least prompt some folks to get vaccinated? Or are we just at this point, if you have not been vaccinated due to some vaccine hesitancy, that individual probably won't do it. Should we say we we're just not going to expect this population to get the vaccination. You know, I think that it will prompt some people. And if we look at the Kaiser Family Foundation data, which you all quoted earlier, it looks at as if three to four out of 10 people who stated that that was their reason for not getting the vaccine will actually now move forward with getting the vaccine. The reason I say who stated that is because we know that some people um, will use, um, you know, what they think is is available to them, uh, they'll move on to a, another, uh, another um, reason. And so I expect that 
some people use that as an excuse and will now continue to seek other excuses. But I do think that it will be effective in 30 to 40 percent of the people who definitely will strongly consider it and hopefully move forward with vaccination. Dr. Morgan, I have a question and more of a comment, too, from a listener who says uh, this listener feels like that those who are unvaccinated are being shamed and that that's Mm -hmm. not the best approach. What more from an education standpoint? Maybe there's some other things that can be done to educate folks instead of shaming them. Your response to that? Yeah, I, I think we should definitely, and I and I think you know I have worked hard with uh, my platform of Stairwell Chronicles to try to provide education in a, just a scientific, everyday format. And I think that is an incredibly good point to be made. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what it ha- was lacking, really, in this entire vaccine rollout is it lacked education ahead of time. And so now the information is moving so quickly and the landscape moves so quickly, it's very hard to keep up with, with the data from day to day to day and how things are changing. And so, you know, I I certainly don't think this shaming, um, if people are feeling that, is the right way to go. But I do think that people need to understand that we are an interdependent society, especially when it comes to contagious diseases. And so any decision that you make for yourself does not only affect yourself. And I think that is why you see people becoming increasingly more involved in others' decisions because we understand that a singular decision is also a decision for many. As Piedmont Healthcare's COVID-19 Task Force Clinical Director, are you doing anything different? Are you are there any other new initiatives? You just mentioned one, but are you doing anything else to get the word out in terms of education? Is there an area within society that we have not penetrated? We've talked about the, the faith community. We've, we've got, uh-huh. you know, Dikembe Mutombo and Dominique Wilkins uh-huh. coming out to DeKalb County. You know, what uh-huh. more needs to happen? You know, I think um, one thing that we need to do, all healthcare systems really, you know, Piedmont included, is continue to develop these community relationships. Um, And relationships, um, you know, go far. And so when you need an opportunity to get a message out, you have these deep relationships with communities that you serve and you're able to have a better penetration um, in communities. Certainly this pandemic came quickly and then the vaccines, you know, you know, uh, appear to have come quickly. I've talked about that before. This is 20 years in development Mm -hmm. um, within the scientific community. Um, but I think relationships matter. And I think especially when you're talking about a healthcare system and uh, the distrust and the, and the historical context of communities of color, black and brown communities with these types of big establishments and the United States government, then relationships really um, are paramount. And so community work is incredibly important. I think meeting people where they are, going out into communities, not just black and brown, all communities, rural communities, Mm -hmm. um, urban communities, um, nursing homes, uh, those kinds of things. Every single different demographic where people, um, you know, may have a particular philosophy or a way of thinking, including religious communities. Um, And we have all these pockets. And I think, you know, it's sort of like, how do you eat an elephant? 
Um, you know, it's just one small bite at a time. You cannot devour an entire elephant in one sitting. And so we have to have patience. Having patience leads to my next question as we wrap up. National health experts, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, so many others have said, you know, maybe by the spring of 2022, maybe by the summer of 2022, we can really, and they said this last time, last year about this time, Uh maybe we can Mm -hmm. really turn the corner. As a healthcare professional here, and I know you're going to be honest with our listeners, Uh how do you see this by this time next year, because I'll probably bring you back on the program, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> I would say maybe we can. And I am ever hopeful. I'm so disappointed as uh, to the way that this summer turned out. We were hoping to be able to have a summer that, you know, was at least it had some semblance of what we were accustomed to doing. Um, you know, unfortunately, many people still did that. And they did that in a very unsafe way. Um, And so I am hoping that next summer everyone will be able to enjoy their summers safely. That's going to mean by next summer we'll have three vaccines that will have full FDA approval. We'll have vaccines available for children. Um, Hopefully there will not be new variants and we will see where we are next summer. So lots more to come. Do you think Georgia can at least get to... 45% 45% full vaccination rate by at least the end of the year. Oh, absolutely. I am 100% confident we can get to 45% uh, full vaccination rate. I hope we can cross the 50% mark and keep going from there. Dr. Jane Morgan, Piedmont Healthcare's COVID-19 Task Force Clinical Director, talking about efforts to get more folks vaccinated. Dr. Morgan, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. Our listeners always write in how uh, they how much they enjoy you. So thank you for coming on, answering the questions. I love it. Follow me on Stairwell Chronicles on Instagram uh, Inst- and uh, on YouTube. Well, you got Dr. an Instagram Jane account, Morgan. Dr. Morgan. I do. Dr. Jane Morgan, <laughs> D-R-J-A-Y-N-E Morgan. All together, follow all of my Stairwell Chronicles. Get all of your COVID vaccine questions answered. Have a YouTube channel under the same name, Twitter as well. Hey. Follow me. Submit your questions. I'll answer them. Hey, get to the masses any way you can, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Morgan. All right. Thank you. Bye. If I actually posted something on Instagram, maybe more people would follow me. I don't post. I'm sorry, y'all. Hang with me. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Remember, you can always catch up on any episode, any program that you missed. It's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. Make sure you stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on the ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.